The Agriculture Department is in many ways mainly a research agency. My next guest came up through the ranks to run the 13,000-person Agricultural Research Service. Now she's the USDA's Undersecretary for Research, Education, and Economics, and its Chief Scientist. And she's also a recent Presidential Rank Award recipient. Shavonda Jacobs-Young joins me now. Dr. Jacobs-Young, good to have you on. Thank you for having me. So, real quick, what's it like to go up into the heady heights of appointee status after being a long-term career federal employee? Well, Tom, you know, I've had 21 years of federal service in science administration, joining the Department of Agriculture in 2002 as the GS-13 National Program Leader, and just falling in love with science for agriculture. And it's been interesting as my responsibilities have grown over the years and moving into the senior executive service to be willing to step into more and more levels of higher responsibility, as you said. It's been an interesting climb over the past 22 years. And does Tom Vilsack come to you when something goes wrong in his garden? (laughs) He knows better than that. He goes to the the experts. And so I'm happy to connect him with the right people, with the solutions. All right. Well stated. And you are the Undersecretary for Research, Education and Economics. And maybe review for us, what are the priorities now in agricultural research? And how does education and economics tie into that? We're really facing a huge challenge globally not just in the United States, but how do we feed a growing population? Uh, We're expecting that our population is going to be over 9 billion by 2050. That's over a billion more mouths to feed. And we know that we want to be able to accomplish that, being great stewards of the environment. So uh, we don't want to increase land. We don't want to increase labor. And so we really have to have science and innovation to meet our challenges around addressing our climate change um, via climate smart agriculture, forestry, clean energy. Uh, We're working very hard in the Department of Agriculture to advance racial justice, equity, and opportunity, and build rural prosperity. We're trying to help our small and mid-sized farmers, where all of our producers have more and better market opportunities so that they can be profitable in their farm production, whatever they decide to grow, wherever they decide to grow it. And we're tackling the important challenge of food and nutrition insecurity. So we're very hard at work every day. Science undergirds each one of those priorities. And so that's what our scientists are working on across the country. And our economists are studying and all of the important data that we provide to not just American agriculture, but global agriculture. Sure. And I guess the most basic form of equity is making sure everybody's fed properly. And you mentioned also that there are $9 people that are going to be on this earth. And I get the sense that for the agriculture department, there is the feeling that the research that is done while it benefits U.S. farmers, I guess maybe this is where the economics comes in. There is a huge export element to this because in many ways there's an obligation to help feed the world. Well, it's an obligation, you know, in a sense, and it has been our history. You know, the U.S. has been so productive in our agriculture. We've had tremendous success in growing productivity going back to the 1950s. You know, we think about Norman Borlaug and the Green Revolution. And science has evolved a lot since then. We know more. We're doing different things. We're doing more. And so now, in addition to being productive, we want to also make opportunities for our producers to be profitable. We're seeing some big challenges in the grain of rural America. So many of our producers are 
fast approaching 58, average age of 58, average age of 60. And we know that if we don't create rural communities where people want to live and can thrive, that we're going to be challenged in terms of meeting the growing demand for food, fuel, fiber that we have, not just here in the U.S., but around the world. And when it comes to increasing productivity of farmland, which seems to shrink, I mean, you and I both live in the same suburban area of Washington, and I know there's apartment complexes and farms full of townhouses that used to be farms full of crops, you know, within our lifetimes. And so what are the big challenges for the next round of productivity? Is it DNA? Is it better fertilizers? Or, I mean, what's the grand challenge here in research? Well, we're actually showing how science and innovation can help us succeed at a time where we've had tremendous growth in agriculture, but we've also seen that it's been because of science and innovation, as I said earlier, because we know that we have an increased amount of land. Well, we see that. You just talked about all the apartments that are in Montgomery County. There are plants and animals we're using biotechnology, genetic and genomic technologies. We've been able to integrate big data, you know, being able to use artificial intelligence and machine learning so that we can do more on the land that is in production. So we're really working to address some of the challenges our farmers face with climate change. You know, we talk about extreme drought, in some cases, extreme floods, extreme heat, the ability to use water that has um, high saline content because we need alternatives. So we're researching all of it. We're speaking with Dr. Shavonda Jacobs-Young. She's the Agriculture Department's Chief Scientist and Undersecretary for Research, Education and Economics. And I want to turn to you for a moment. You are a Presidential Rank Award winner in the most recent class. Tell us about that. What did they cite in this award? Because they don't tell the public what people did. Well, thank you for asking. I'm honored to have received the Presidential Rank Award, the distinguished one here in 2022. And, and in 2016, I was honored to have received the Meritorious Presidential Rank Award. And it has been built on my career in science for agriculture. And so as part of that award and the acknowledgement, just being able to share some of the things that I've done in terms of building up the scientific enterprise for USDA, for me, being in USDA for almost two decades and working in the area of science, being able to help stand up the office of the chief scientist for the USDA, the first time that we had an office of the chief scientist to support the chief scientist, in which interestingly now I am the chief scientist. And so it was wonderful to be the first director of that office leading the department in integrating its first scientific integrity policy in response to the White House's work around increasing scientific integrity across the country. And we're in a great position right now to really be responsive and help role model for others how to truly implement scientific integrity training and policies into the departments. Looking at some of our investments around scientific infrastructure is one of my highest priorities, and that is to modernize scientific infrastructure for agriculture. And that includes our buildings and facilities. And so across the country, ARS, at the time I was ARS administrator, we have some $6 billion worth of buildings, you know, average age, you know, looking at 48, 50-year-old buildings. And it only takes one walk around a land-grant university campus and looking at the difference between the engineering buildings and the medical schools. And then there is our ARS facility right there in all of its 1964 glory. 
And so really working very hard to secure funding for investing in our buildings. And we've been able to, since 2015, I'm leading the agency and securing over a billion dollars to invest in those buildings and facilities to modernize them so that there are places where young people want to work and study and thrive and ultimately join us in agriculture. And high-performance computing, you know, have an opportunity to develop and establish the first scientific high-performance computing network for ARS first and now for the USDA. And now we're partnering with our land-grant universities across the country, really understanding that agriculture is high-tech. And because it's high-tech, we have lots and lots of data, and we need to be able to use that data in the optimum way. And that means being able to implement tools like artificial intelligence and machine learning, being able to share it, being able to use the cloud storage. And then really, the third part of that, which is really important, train a cadre of people who are able to help us with that. And so really putting a lot of funding in training and, and having fellows and postdocs so that we have the next generation of our data scientists for agriculture secured. So those are just some of the examples of some work that I've done that I believe supported my selection for Distinguished Rank Award. I will also talk about my work at the White House, really spending two years at the Office of Science and Technology Policy. And after leaving OSTP, really continue to help have some leadership with National Science and Technology Council committees and subcommittees. So just staying very active in the space of agricultural science. And by the way, what is your particular specialty in agricultural science? Well, that's a great question, Tom. My PhD is in a field now called paper science and engineering. And so, yes, I know what you're thinking. Like, what? Wait a second. (laughs) And so I am from a college of forest resources and forestry is a part of USDA. Yes, indeed. And so that's how I entered the department is working with biofuels, forestry products and non-food products. And so that's how I joined USDA in 2002. Well, that's interesting because people may not realize that, you know, paper does require science and engineering. And, you know, if you know the difference between tissue paper and corrugated, then, you know, you begin to see the variety and the amount of research that does go into paper and wood-based products. So good for you. And a final question on the Ascend program. I know that's something important to you. It has benefited you and you hope it benefits some others. Right. So I am so excited about Ascend. It is the Agricultural Science Center of Excellence for Nutrition and Diet for Better Health. And we are so excited to have been able to work with Secretary Vilsack to launch Ascend late last year. And we've been working in response to the president's cancer moonshot 2.0. And Ascend is all around being able to integrate three components. It's doing nutrition research. It is collecting the best data around nutrition and it's engaging with the community. We believe that while there are very important roles for treating cancer and chronic disease, that USDA has an important role of helping to prevent some of the chronic disease, especially the disparities we see in minority communities. And so it's been one of the areas that I'm extremely passionate about. We've started this process by going out into the communities. Our first partnership was with Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, talking with predominantly African-American community. And we want to hear about people's lived experiences. Where do they get their trusted data? You know, how do they use this data? Who do they trust? And then what 
what can we be doing to do a better job to address the nutrition disparities in those communities? And then secondly, we were in Laredo, Texas, a community that's 96% Hispanic and just had an overpouring of just uh, participation in both places. But hearing from people with lived experiences, the things that we can do to make their lives better and really share with people that for us, you know, I talk often about this in my community and my own family. Many of my ancestors died in their 50s. And for me, that is simply unacceptable. And primarily from chronic conditions, hypertension, diabetes, stroke, kidney disease. It's it's a norm in my family. We that three-day trek to dialysis. Well, it's not normal. And there are some things we can do. There are a lot of things that are outside of our control, but what we eat is not one of them. A few years ago, I think it was Health and Human Services had a program to get hypertension information and prevention and treatment out to, in this case, it was the black community. And one of their media for doing that was barbershops. And most ethnic groups have some kind of a center in some communities. It's the barbershop. It might be the social club in other communities. Any thought of using those types of community trusted local organizations to get that message out? That's why we partner with Southern University and their 1890 Center of Excellence. That's why we partner with Texas A&M International University and Representative Cuellar joined us in Laredo, Texas, because those are trusted members of the community. And so we're partnering with those folks who are already on the ground because we know how important it is for people to trust the information that they are receiving and to trust us with their stories. One of the parts of um, these programs have been people going into a booth and sharing their story. You know, you mentioned hypertension. Tom, I was diagnosed with hypertension. I think I was 19 or 20 years old. That makes two of us. I was a track athlete. I think I was 120 pounds soaking wet, five, 10 and a half. What was your event? A high jumper. Wow. I was a high jumper at North Carolina State University. And it just, to me, you know, the predeposition for hypertension was something that never gave a second thought to. So when I was diagnosed, it was kind of like, wow, this is interesting. Yet, I think almost every woman in my family has hypertension, but we just didn't talk about it. And what should I have been doing to maybe prevent the onset of it? And so now I've lived with it, you know, number of decades. We won't say how many. Um, and learning how to eat properly, how to, to take my medicines, knowing that diabetes in my family has led to subsequent situations that could have been prevented, loss of limbs, loss of life, kidney failure. You know, there are all these things that, you know, this is sort of a rolling set of events that could have potentially been prevented had we met, made some better choices about what we eat and how we move our bodies. And at the same time, though, the medical knowledge of what is a good diet has been a moving target over the decades. We haven't yet gotten to the point where it turns out bacon, cheddar, cheeseburgers are the best thing you can possibly have. But, you know, what was known wisdom in the 70s was very different in the 90s, very different now. So doesn't this also have to be accompanied by some really good basic research and data-driven looks at the whole nutrition question? And this is what we call precision nutrition, which is at the core of a sin for better health. Being able to take lived experiences, 
data from many different communities and being able to be more precise in the guidance that we give. We use things like the BMI right now. We know that's a standard that we have. Are there opportunities to improve upon that based on the different subpopulations that we serve? There are many opportunities for us to be more precise in how we provide guidance. We're not a one-size-fits-all. And I guess people can go to the USDA site and get more information about all of this? Absolutely. We encourage and invite people to follow us at USDA Science, at USDA Science. We would love to have their participation and have them share their stories if they're so inclined. And by the way, what is a good snack for people that want to keep their hypertension in, but really love potato chips? Everything in moderation, Tom. But a diet, you know, high in healthy fruit and vegetables, I think is a great place to start. All right, I'm going to bite that apple that's right here in my studio. Dr. Chavanda Jacobs-Young is the Agriculture Department's Chief Scientist and Undersecretary for Research, Education, and Economics. Pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for joining with me. Thank you for having me, Tom. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, President of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children 
plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with him about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, 
uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.